Well, it's going worldwide. Um, Cape Town had their first recovery walk this last um, September. Um, there's there's recovery communities throughout the world. So it is happening worldwide, but we just need to, again, we tend to get a little complacent or think somebody else is doing that work. I always say, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. Like, where do you want to be? That was Chris Kelly, and this is The Share Podcast. It's time for The Share Recovery Podcast, where we bring you amazing life-changing success stories from addicts and alcoholics all over the world who share their inspiring journey in recovery. And now, here's your host, Oh. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of The Share Podcast. And today, we have Chris Kelly, the program director for the MRC, the Minnesota Recovery Connection, joining us on the show. I am so excited to have an opportunity to interview Chris. In today's episode, we dive in once again into the language we use about recovery and how important advocacy is for changing the way we look at the faces and voices of recovery. And of course, my favorite part of the episode is Chris allowing herself to be vulnerable and open about her past and what led her to find her own personal pathway into recovery. Chris is adorable. You're going to absolutely love this episode. So let's dive into Chris's story. But first, I'm excited to announce the launch of our brand new online membership community, ShareSpace. It's a private paid community where as a group, we take our careers, our health, our relationships, and our recovery to another level. Each week, you will get on a membership call live with me, and the other members of ShareSpace, and we will have open discussions where we discuss what's holding you back, your limiting beliefs, and how to find all the happiness, fulfillment, and purpose that you deserve in your life. So for more information on how to become a member of the ShareSpace tribe, then go to www.sharespace.net. Remember to spell share, S-H-A-I-R. And if you like what you see, then sign up for a free 15-minute call with me to see if ShareSpace is the right place for you. ShareSpace, it's time to believe in yourself again. And for those of you that are looking for the perfect recovery gift to give to yourself or to a friend in recovery, then go to www.allrecoveryrings.com. At All Recovery Rings, you can have any recovery medallion beautifully transformed into a ring you can wear on your finger. All you need to do is select the medallion of your choice, Submit your ring size, and All Recovery Rings will create the perfect ring for you. So go to www.allrecoveryrings.com and order your recovery ring today. And for those of you who love listening to the Share podcast and want to enhance your recovery, then join us in our Share Facebook private group, the Share Recovery Network. In this free Facebook private group, you will meet thousands of people in recovery that are loving, caring, and being of service. If you're struggling in your recovery or you're struggling in life, then this might be the perfect place for you. The purpose of the Share Recovery Network is to discuss recovery in all of its facets and all of its pathways in a way that is attractive and all-inclusive. So to join us in this Facebook private group, go to Facebook, go to the search bar, type in S-H-A-I-R Recovery Network, and our private Facebook group will pop right up. So join us today. And if you haven't done so already, don't forget to leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes. It's one of the best ways to show your support for the podcast. And speaking of kick-ass reviews, our next review comes from Dallas Recovery. 
Best recovery on the way to work. What a way to recover every day on the way to work. My commute is pretty long, so getting to meetings early is hard. Recovery is the bomb. This podcast helps me get through the day every day. It's only through recovery that I'm able to live life the way I was made to live. Thanks, Dallas, for the kick-ass review. And this is one of the reasons why I started the Share Podcast in the first place. Sometimes we can't get to meetings as often as we'd like. And on these long commutes to work, what better way to use our time than to connect with a power greater than ourselves? And that's what we do when we listen to another recovering addict share their experience, strength, and hope. So thanks again, Dallas, and HP, baby. Now a quick message from Transitions Daily, and then on to the show. Would you like to join a free, anonymous online group that offers a daily topic email with popular recovery resources accompanied by a secret Facebook group for discussion? Then go to dailyaaemails.com for more information about Transitions Daily. And don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends, in meetings, and with sponsees in recovery. Hey, Chris, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Omar. Thank you for having me. It's a privilege. I'm very excited to have you on the show today. How are you feeling? I'm feeling pretty snazzy. <laughs> and I'm feeling good. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even know where that came from, but it just felt like felt just felt appropriate at the moment. It was. It was very appropriate. All right. So, folks, today we have Chris Kelly joining us on the Share Podcast. Chris is the co-executive director for the MRC, which stands for the Minnesota Recovery Connection. I met Chris when I flew up to Minnesota to get certified as a peer recovery specialist, and she's. She was one of our amazing instructors. So in a nutshell, Chris and the MRC are part of the recovery movement whose sole purpose is to educate the masses, remove the stigma, and change the language we use when discussing recovery. Does that sound about right, Chris? That sounds about right. Awesomeness. Thank God I got that right. (laughs) All right. So Chris, before we dive into, uh, you know, how you got into the MRC, uh, tell us a little bit about what your normal daily routine looks like, including recovery? Yeah. So right now, because I work for a recovery community organization, my um, my passions blend with my work, which is 90% of the time a really positive thing. About 10% of the time, it can get a little um, overwhelming because mm-hmm. I live and breathe recovery. And that's probably a lot of people's dreams. But uh, sometimes you have to find yourself outside of that scope and connect with what makes you human, not just not just your recovery persona. So that's actually something I'm working on right now in my personal life is finding that balance and figuring out, um, you know, who 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 am I? Who is Chris Kelly? Who is she outside of the realms of recovery? And what does that life look like? Um, I have a 15 year old daughter, so she keeps me pretty busy. Um, and we'll go into it more later, but she was six when I got into recovery. And so I've really spent 11 years trying to be the best mom possible and being super present in her life. And I have a sweetie in my life, Ryan, who's the best ally for recovery I could think of. Um, he's not a person in recovery, but um, completely supports me in my pathway. Um, but daily routine, you know, I'm kind of a keep it simple, get up, go to work come home, hang out with the family, cook. We love to cook in my house. We love to laugh. We love to play games. We have a dog. So 
you know, just spending time that way and then making time for friends and family. My whole family lives um, in the Twin Cities where I am. So I see my parents frequently and my siblings. Um, We love going to movies. We love just hanging out. Listen, I totally get it. It sounds, it mirrors my life. You know, we we get into recovery and people think, God, it's going to be so boring. And then we yeah. just then we describe our lives to talk about how, you know, it's beyond our wildest dreams. And then people listen and go, still sounds boring. You yeah. know, so I mean, don't don't get it. It's 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 something that, you know, once you get to a certain level, you realize that it's those simple things are the most important. You know, I got an opportunity to hang out with Chris at her house, to hang out with Ryan and her daughter, you know, um, and you know, you can tell that there's so much love in that house. And so, you know, from the moment you found recovery, you know, since since she was six years old until now, that all the, yeah. it makes all the difference in the world because she's a, she's a pretty well-together little kid there. Well, she is. a big yeah. kid. I won't tell you said that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Young woman. <laughs> yes, yes. Young lady. Young lady, yeah. right? Yeah. Yes, Chris is a baker. She made some brownies, uh, regular brownies for those regular. Of you yes, regular. I've switched over to regular. Right, right. Oh, they were fantastic. <laughs> so anyway, we had a ton of fun over in Minnesota when I was there, and yes, I'm very grateful that I got a chance to see that. Let's get a small window of what your home life looks like because it's true, man. I mean, once you get once your life shifts in that direction, it is, and it's that you know, leave it to beaver kind of lifestyle that actually is oh, yeah. what I always wanted, you know, and I have that, you know, I have the time with, with my family and I'll, I spend a tremendous amount of time in recovery. So I, I know what, I know exactly what you're talking about, but, you know, I would say that my family and friends is, is where I create that balance, you know, um, and everything else is recovery, man. It's just, it's just the way it is. And for right now, I, I don't have any problem with it. Yeah. Yeah. Agree. Well, and you brought up a good point because I think when we come into recovery, we have to be really cognizant of like where our brain is at and that we're we're used to extremes. And so um, having things be simple and in um, dealing with boredom, like boredom is just kind of a lack of imagination. Yes. I mean, it's really just like oh, be, be okay, like practice being still, practice being quiet, practice having nothing to do. And don't think of it as boring because um, you don't always have to plug in. You don't always have to be on the go. And I think you realize like that, that time is what like the gifts of life come in those quiet times that we might label as boring, but really it's, it's where you find that um, connection. You ground yourself. Well, and speaking of that grounding and connection, uh, how do you maintain your spiritual condition, that conscious contact with your higher power? Yeah, I mean, I tap into that like every day. I pretty much wake up and um, kind of just recite to myself, like, just worry about what you got to do today. And um, really, I call it like keeping a pulse on life. So I like to keep a pulse on um, what resonates with my body, um, my what feels right in my heart is usually what I'm supposed to be doing, and um, so I need. Yep, <laughs> there he is, the Buddha. Yeah, 
I'm showing I'm showing right now, Chris, uh, my Buddha sculpture that sits on my desk just yeah. to, to bring that in. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So it's not so, you know, so sometimes it's getting and and not always processing everything or over processing and think of all the shoulds and coulds and just being in that moment and doing what feels good. And to me, that's living a spiritual life. I could not agree more. And the thing, too, is that when I think about what the most important decisions that I have made, the most stressful moments in my life, the things that, you know, when I'm when I find myself in that discomfort and I'm trying to figure out what's going on in my life, I, I always go back to my tools. My tools are morning prayer and meditation um, and journaling. Right. So mm-hmm. usually when the shit hits the fan is when I will like, oh, my God, OK, I got to get up in the morning. OK, I got to get back to my practice. Right. But the, the real the real secret is to never leave that practice. If you get up every single day and you just dedicate, um, sometimes for me, it's it's 20 minutes. But when I'm pretty regular about it, it's 20 minutes of meditation. It's probably about five minutes of prayer. It's less than five minutes of prayer. All right. Let's just be serious. All right. So. It's it's well under three minutes of prayer. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, it's usually like the NA third step prayer or something. You know what I mean? But it's just like me, and I'll usually get on my knees. Like, okay, God, I'm connecting here. Let me connect, and then I'll sit for 20 minutes, quiet meditation, and then I'll start journaling, which could be 10 minutes, but could be sometimes could be another 20 minutes, right? But I don't care, right? Because I know when I'm done with that, there's almost nothing that can come in my way. That's going to, to is going to really rattle me. Well, and I think, you know, I won't I won't like totally bullshit everybody and say I have this great routine and I'm all, you know, I'm cued in because right now I'm not. And <clears throat> but I know that won't that won't last long and I won't be my best self in that state. So part of it is that, you know, when I got into recovery, I was I was working in restaurants and it was a thing because I worked like 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. and about maybe, you know, 30, 32 hours a week. So it gave me a lot of time to the first, I don't know, four or five years of my recovery to hone in on those things. And you know, I went and got a um, yoga certification and that was a great deep dive into kind of how I show up in my own body. And then, um, you know, practiced a lot of mindfulness with kids because I like being around little kids. And when I came into this job, um, it's kind of crowded out those things that I think keep help keep me sane. And it doesn't mean I'm off the chain. It doesn't mean that I'm at risk for relapse or reoccurrence. But what it does mean is I'm probably not bringing my whole self into situations. And so um, I've had to reconfigure what that means to me. And so it's like, I don't turn on NPR in my car anymore because it just throws me into a tizzy of thinking about stuff I don't need to be thinking about. So it's playing some music in my car versus listening to the news or taking five minutes at work just to like shut my door and breathe and, and not, you know, be looking at emails and taking phone calls. And so I think you can still find it. It's just to even have an awareness of when it's not there and that may lead you to some, you know, that that lack of connection might, you know, become prickly in your life. <laughs> I don't know. I love that that prickly feeling. 
Because sometimes it's prickly and sometimes it's downright nauseating. Right? Oh yeah, oh. absolutely. And it's just absolutely. like it's 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 horrifying, you know. But and the only way I get out of it is to, to to seriously just get back into that quiet time. Like you said, get in the car. Don't put on the damn news. You know, yeah. don't get all don't listen to all the politics. You know, listen to music or listen to the Share podcast. That's yes. always a good <laughs> always a good recommendation. Um, so anyway, well, thank you for that. Um, so tell us quickly. Uh, no, but first, how much clean time do you have and when is your anniversary date? So I just took a shower, so I probably have 15 minutes of clean time. Excellent. That's wonderful. All right. Um, and my uh, recovery date <laughs> is... Goofball. <laughs> Go. <laughs> um, April 27th of 2009. April 27th, 2009. Awesome. So how long is that? Um, eight and a half years. Awesome. Awesome. Excellent. Excellent. All right. So briefly, Chris, tell us about the first time you drank or used drugs and more importantly, how they made you feel. Yeah. So, um, my first introduction was to alcohol and I was probably, I don't know, it was when I was eight, nine years old. And when my parents would get ready to go out my mom would have, and so my mother is, is a normal user, very even sporadic. I would say at this point in her life, she drinks once or twice a year. And even back then it was just tiny, tiny amounts of alcohol at before a party or something like that, where my dad was, um, definitely had a substance use disorder. Got it. And so, um, but my mom would always have me go down and pour her the tiniest little glass of amaretto while she was getting ready. <laughs> and if you know amaretto, it's like cough syrup. It's delicious <laughs> to an eight-year-old. So I would go down and pour that glass, shoot it, pour it again, shoot it, pour it, and give it to her. <laughs> and <laughs> Unbeknownst to her. Oh. And so what I found was... Even at that age, the just that warm goosh that came over me, just it was like pulling on just a cozy sweater, you know, jumping in a hot tub and just swimming around and loving life. And it was just really minimal. I never sought it out outside of that because I don't even think I really knew like what it was or or, you know, that there is different types of alcohol or, you know, how you'd feel if you drank more. But that's the first time I can remember having that, like, it was like that relationship took off. And it probably wasn't again till I was, I don't know, 12 or 13, where I actually sought out drugs and alcohol on my own and had an understanding of, oh, I like who I am when I use these substances. Um, and, and it just kind of took off from there and it was pretty consistent drinking use, um, until around 15, 16, I actually quit drinking alcohol and continued on with, um, you know, any other drugs for, and <laughs> cause I had a straight edge boyfriend. Oh, so I didn't. Oh, very interesting. Okay. You're getting into your story now. So we're good. All right. So now Chris, it's officially time for me to sh turn this show over to you. It's time for you to okay. share your story, the battle against drugs and alcohol, the wreckage it caused in your life when you hit rock bottom, and then finally your journey into recovery up until today. So Chris, please take it away. So I had just been sharing with Omar 
I'd been sharing with you that I, you know, you started around eight or nine, but it was really sporadic and really not ongoing, but just I, that's where I can clearly identify where I fell in love, where I just fell in love with the substance and said, this is what makes me feel good. And just being an awkward kid, I was an awkward looking little kid, big old glasses, funny haircuts, buck teeth. I sucked my thumb. So my teeth just stuck out <laughs> and it made me feel like I was okay being in my body. And, and even though I didn't consciously process that, then um, I can look back now with clarity and say, oh, that's, that's what it did for me. Um, and 12 or 13 was when the youth escalated to where I intentionally sought things out and I knew kind of what I was doing and what, what I wanted the outcome to be. Um, and I just would never have the switch. I never, ever had the switch in my brain that said, stop. Um, if I started use on anything, it was all in all night long until I either threw up or passed out. And, but I came into a, a group of um, straight edge kids when I was 15 and kind of went to the punk rock scene and, you know, had a mohawk and the whole kit and caboodle. And do you got pictures um, of that? that like, what? Do you got pictures of those mohawk days? I do. I do. I do. Not like here, but I want, they may service. I want one of those. <laughs> I want one for your interview for posting. Yes. Yes. People are going to want to see uh, this, Chris. <laughs> You got, the reason why I asked folks, the reason why I asked folks, because if you saw Chris, right, like when I met Chris, <laughs> it would be impossible for you to even imagine her with a mohawk. She looks like she walks no. around at home with an apron and little mittens. Yes, right? I do. And, and, and I do. cooks brownies and cookies <laughs> all day. And, and it's, yeah, and it isn't until her tattoos start to show that you go, hmm, there's a little edginess there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like to hide it. I like to have surprises for people. So came into the um, kind of the straight edge group and in part of that group, I just chose not to drink. And I think part of that was learning how identifiable um, alcohol was, you know, mm -hmm. so people could smell it on you. And I was pretty much able to, um, you know, like pop a pill or smoke a joint or do something without, um, without anybody really, or me thinking nobody knew. Um, and that really, I attribute to, I look back at that and I, I think, wow, that's, that's addiction. I mean, that's, I knew how to hide my use. I knew I wanted to hide my use. Um, stigma is all over the place there. I didn't, I didn't want to identify as, as being somebody who had issues, but I knew this isn't, I wasn't using like other people. And that lasted through college. And I actually went to St. Cloud State University in, um, in for a semester um and it is known as like the drinking school of of the u.s <laughs> so and i didn't drink when i was there and it was miserable it was miserable but um dropped out of college and turned 21 and it was all bets are off yeah. um definitely just knew that it was like in that space, I was finding people, people just like me. And actually on my 21st birthday, I went out to the bars and I met a gentleman who um, wooed me and, you know, we were in love at first sight and he was, I mean, he was a heavy drinker, heavy, heavy drinker, a little bit older than me. And it's like, I found my best buddy and my best drinking buddy. And really just um, 
pursued that lifestyle and it, it made sense to me. And if, and again, it was all about, I never, ever liked being in my body. I never liked how I looked, who I was, what I did, anything except for when I drank and, and used chemicals. And, um, I really just pursued that lifestyle for the next 15 years. Um, in that, in that time, um, you know, I, I wound up in jail cells a handful of times. I had two DWIs at age 21 that were 10 months apart. Um, and the second one, I spent, a, you know, a, a, well, not considerable, but enough for me time um, incarcerated. And it was pretty devastating. Can you expand a little bit on what <laughs> you mean by devastating? Yeah, yeah. Um the the second incident the second DWI was actually a car accident where I passed out and I t-boned a car crossing an intersection and I drove that car into a bus shelter and I woke up in the hospital and I didn't know that I had been in a car accident and I had a neck brace on and I was in the emergency room and I took the neck brace off and walked home barefoot with nothing oh my god And I got in my house and started thinking, well, I need to figure out what happened. And I was used to that because I had blacked out plenty in my life. So I knew kind of the MO. And so for me, it was like, well, where's my car? Why was I in the hospital? And so um, I I started to call around. And for some reason, my boss at my job, I was a waitress downtown Minneapolis. And uh, Somehow my boss had gotten a call from the chief of police that they had my car impounded and it was totaled. And he called me and told me that. So I called the police station and I said, you know, I hear you have my car. And I was just kind of wondering what happened. (laughs) Jesus. Oh, Um, my God. And he said, you were in an accident. And I said, well, did I? What happened? And he said, you hit another car. And I said, was there anybody in that car? And he said, yes. I said, are they living? And he said, you know what, lady, I'm not going to tell you. And I hung up the phone and I called my dad and I told him, you have to come over because I'm going to kill myself if I hurt somebody. And so he, my dad drove over and waited with me for the police to call me back and tell me if I had killed somebody. And so um, got the phone call back and I did not but they were hospitalized and that reality sunk in that, um, you know, I'd done something I was really ashamed of and I'm not going to call it a choice because I don't, I really, you know, at that point I was so deep in my addiction. I really wasn't making choices and I don't remember getting in my car. I don't remember any of that, but I took responsibility for it. And so I went to court for that and um, got a, I was given the option of um, doing, you know, executing the sentence or going through their, one of the first um, DWI courts in the state. And so I completed a two-year program through DWI court, which part of it was maintaining sobriety, going through clinical treatment, and then pretty literally every day for two years, you had something that you had to do to better yourself, contribute to the community, service and sobriety, all of that. And so um, that was my first experience with AA. Um, It was, 
I really, I never, ever connected to that, to that pathway. And so I just kind of went and checked the box. Um, but I did spend those two years sober. And, but I will not call, I was abstinent. <laughs> I'll be clear about that. I spent those two years abstinent. Why um, not I didn't it? really change much in my life besides not drinking. Um, I knew I felt better. I knew my body felt better. Um, but at the end of that two years, my parents were in a car accident and uh, my mom was in a coma and I was taking the bus back and forth all over the place, going to the hospital every day and all this. And my uh, probation officer actually let me off probation a little bit early because she knew what I was doing, trying to take care of my mom and keep my family together and all that. So, um, but within days of getting off probation, then I was back, mm, back using. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I had periods where it would be, I could maintain and um, be functional and then periods where I couldn't and um, I would lose jobs and I would lose friendships and um, you know, my family hung on. I, they, they love me unconditionally and that's clear in my life. Um, They would definitely confront it and say, you know, we know this isn't you, this isn't who you were born to be and we want you to get better, but we just don't know how to do that. Um, so then over the course of, I would say the next, I don't know, five, six years, I had two more stays in treatment. Um, I kept trying and of course I'd go in for the assessment and kind of lie about everything so that I could get the least treatment possible because that seemed like the best thing to do. Uh, Of course. And, um, so I went through two more treatment stays, um, both outpatient, so I could manage my life. And, you know, that's the hard part. You're given this option of going to treatment. And it's, it's super scary because it means quitting your job. You know, if it's residential, it's losing a job because our jobs typically, if you're not a, you know, corporate executive that has benefits, our jobs don't cover our time and people don't um, see going to treatment as, um, you know, getting well from an illness, they still see it as, well, you're immoral and dysfunctional and we don't want you working for us. So, um, you know, I'd always opt to go to outpatient treatment so that I could maintain my jobs and not really talk about that part of my life. And every treatment I went to, they just say, well, 90 and 90, 90 meetings in 90 days. And I was like, man, dude, that doesn't, I don't connect. I don't get it. It doesn't make sense to me. There has to be some other way. No, it's you. You're being resistant. You're treatment resistant. I loved being called treatment resistant. Like I'm a viral. I'm going to start using that term. I like it. <laughs> so um, <laughs> treatment resistant. No, I worked in a rehab. People are plenty treatment resistant. That's for sure. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I will not agree with that. Like, <laughs> said, I'm not a virus. I'm not a bacteria. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, but really what it was, was no play. I hadn't, I hadn't gone to a place that said, well, how, what would recovery look like for you? I hadn't found a place that would say that because I, even at that time during my life, I had some really deep spiritual beliefs. Um, I had a, a piece of me that I identified with 
you know, I can think back to being five and six years old, this, this part of me that I identified with, that it was a deep spiritual connection. Um, and that's really what turned it all around was, was, um, well, being 35 is when, so I was 35 when I got into recovery. And what had happened was there was the last three or four years was, um, you know, a separation from my father's, my daughter's father. Um, and overall, that's a healthy, good thing. But the way it was handled at the time, I did not handle that well. Um, and living on my own with just my daughter, I put her life at risk day in and day out, day in, day out, day in and day out. Um, I did not show up. I would leave her to get off the bus by herself and she'd have to walk to a neighbor's in a neighborhood she wasn't familiar with and um, trying to find a way to get a hold of her mom. She was six. Um, somehow I had maintained not drinking and driving until that point, till that very end. And then it was just, there was no option because I was, um, you know, drinking or using some sort of chemical 24 seven. And, um, I started to notice I couldn't not do it because my body would go into withdrawal and it was terrifying. And I really believed I'm going to die if I go into withdrawal because your heart races and your, um, your body shuts down. And I, I knew that's what was happening. And I knew there was so much support out there for me, but I just couldn't make that move to say I'm done. And there was no critical moment when that came, meaning nothing happened. Out of all the things that had happened, I mean, I had busted my head open once and had 11 staples in my head and um, constantly falling. I broke my nose four times. I mean, I was all over the place, hurting myself and in and out of hospitals and, um, and that sort of thing. But there was no event that finally brought me to that moment other than just really the clarity that um, I'm going to lose my kid. And I should. At that point, I was like, I am not fit to be her mother. Um, and, and in that moment, I just picked up my phone and called my dad. And I said, I want to be done. I'm done. And he didn't even have to ask what or how or anything. He said, I'm on my way. And he walked into my house and just sat down and gave me a hug and didn't say a word. He just was with me. And uh, whew, that's a tough one. <laughs> that's beautiful. But I love it. It was that. It was that. Like, I go back to that moment when I think about peer support. I go back to that mm. moment of him being with me, being unconditional, and just offering me him and not trying to fix it. He wasn't making calls to treatment centers. He wasn't like, oh, we're bringing you to detox. We're, you know, he wasn't formulating the list. He just was with me. And he, then he finally looked and said, what do you need me to do? And I said, I have liquor all over this house. I need you to get rid of all of it. And so he went around my house and I showed him all my hiding spots and he found more and he dumped it all out. And he said, what's next? You know, and he asked me, he let me guide that ship. And it was like somebody, somebody telling me like, you know what you're doing and now I'm here to help you. And, uh, you know, the next, over the course of the next week, I was able to seek out a, a treatment modality that made sense to me. Um, and, a, I found a place where I thought I could heal and, um, 
made arrangements for my daughter to be cared for while I was away. And I went all in. I just went all in. Like, I just want this more than anything um, because I don't want to lose her because she's the center of my universe. And it, and it stuck and it, it just made sense. All of a sudden it was, there was clarity around all the potential and possibilities in my life. (laughs) There's probably about, I don't know. I don't even think anybody at MRC has ever heard me tell that. Oh man. Thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, well, your dad empowered you. That's what he did. And that's what he did. I think, I think that's why you gravitate so strongly towards what you do because you found in your father what worked for you and what seemed to be the right thing for others. The ability to give people the, 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 the ability to choose. You know, you empower them. He empowered you by asking you what you wanted to do. Um, and now you also said your dad had a substance use problem as well. Was he sober at the time when he was helping you or was it's, it's, he's same old, same old when he stepped in? Yeah, my dad um, has pretty much been able to maintain recovery. So he's sober. Uh, okay, okay. I, I can't answer personal. that. Okay. I don't know that. Um, <laughs> Strike that. But I know, <laughs> what I know is he, he shows up in my life wholeheartedly okay. as the dad that he needs to be. Awesome. My parents had a pretty devastating time. When I was born, they lost. Um, my sister died and she was nine. And it was a really slow, painful death. And my dad lost his mom to um, addiction as well. And so um, there's a lot there and he contends with a lot. And I don't know that parents ever recover from losing a child. And I think a lot of his substance use is around that. And so I don't judge his substance use and I don't really ask where it's at other than, um, you know, if he's able to show up in life and he's happy, that's where he needs to be. So that's not, that's, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. All right. So that was, um, was that your bottom? Was that yeah, your, where you began your journey into recovery? Yeah, I don't know if it, you know, I can think of worse moments than that one, but that's the moment that I just had clarity. It was like this gift bestowed upon me. Um, there were lots of bottoms. I don't know. My, you know, I really think, I mean, bottom is death. You know, I mean, that's what it comes down to is that's where there's no coming back. But there's that, there is that pivotal moment where, you know, you realize that, you know, like you said, like you called your dad and you said, I need help. I'm done. And he understood what you meant by that. Yeah. And you were, and that at that moment is when you were done. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So well, then, there was a little bit of use after that, but that was kind of maintenance because I was self with putting myself through with uh, <laughs> withdrawal. Withdrawal. Okay, <laughs> I guess. Okay. I got you. I got you. Um, um, but it definitely wasn't like the worst moment. It wasn't a moment where there was consequences or um, it wasn't after an accident or, you know, uh, getting arrested or it wasn't that. And that's kind of where I find there's like misnomers about, oh, they just haven't hit bottom yet. First of all, I think that's ridiculous because we're not like, oh, your finger's mostly attached. We're going to wait till it's completely cut off to bring you to the hospital. You know, we don't, <laughs> we don't do that. So it doesn't make sense to tell people in recovery, like, oh, you just haven't hit rock bottom yet. Cause it just, that doesn't make sense to me at all. Like I want to, I want to help people 
at the first sign that maybe they're struggling. But yeah, I found clarity when there wasn't where most people wouldn't identify that moment as rock bottom. It just is my moment of clarity. And really what it was, was that individual, my dad, who walked into my house and and was just with me. Because I don't think I would have um, pursued that path had he not been available. I got you. I got you. Now, you mentioned there was a treatment modality. You said there was a treatment modality that worked for you. What 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 modality was that? Well, the place I went was um, based on a 12-step pathway. But what, what it was there was tons of meditation, tons and tons of meditation. And then it was out in the middle of the woods. And so every day I would run and I would just run until... I couldn't run anymore. And there was a beautiful path you could run through the woods. So you'd just circle, you know, like a mile long through the woods, come back to the front, through the woods, come back to the front. And that's pretty much was it. Because as my brain woke up, all of a sudden I wanted to read more and I wanted to connect more. And um, I found people that I could talk to. The, it, there was no clinical treatment there. It was all just people in recovery getting well together. So it was, there was no clinicians, no therapists. It was literally just groups of people getting well together. And we were fed really well. So it was healthy, healthy meals. So it's like my body got adjusted pretty quick. Um, but that's too where that was kind of part two of now looking back in my life, how peer support has played such a role in me getting well um, and why I chose the career path that I did because I know um, us being with each other, us people in recovery, being with each other is really, really vital. I mean, it heals, it heals like some of those wounds that you just, you, you don't even know if you can look at much less like deal with, um, people in recovery are pretty magic at helping us heal those wounds. How did you find that place? Online, Google. Okay. <laughs> but what did you Google? Because it's a very, it's, it's, it's very different. It's more holistic. So, you know, um, Omar met Ryan, who's my, my, my guy. Yes. And he, I met Ryan eight months before I got into recovery. So he was with me through some really dark times and he too. So this is part of it. He never tried to fix me, Omar. Never once did this guy try to fix me. He just wanted me to be well. And he was not an enabler. Um, he was, it was unique. I think he's a gift. He's a gift from, from the world to me that he just wanted me to be well. And when I chose that pathway, he just said, okay. And said, whatever I need to do to support that, you tell me though. And he let me guide the ship. And so it was him and I that looked for a treatment center. And, you know, I had been around the system enough to know kind of what I had to do. And I actually went and got uh, an assessment and they gave me two choices that uh, they would pay for. Um, cause we have a beautiful thing called rule 25 here in the great state of Minnesota that, um, pays for treatment, but the two options they gave me were clinic, clinical and hospital-based settings. And I was like, I can't go get well there. I won't get well there. Um, it was, it was too sterile and it scared me and it wasn't about resistance. Again, it was like, I know where I can get well. And in looking through just different web pages, this place popped up and it showed it was in the middle of the woods. Um, and it looked more like a house than a, than a facility. 
And literally the moment I opened that page, I said, that's where I'm going to get well. And then I just made, it was out of pocket and I had to make a lot of concessions in my life to pay for that. It wasn't astronomical, but it was at that time in my life when you make $8,000 a year, um, (laughs) not a lot of savings for uh, anything else, but between going to some people and saying, this is what I need and um, getting some loans that I, you know, now have gratefully paid back, making an investment. That's really what it was. It was making an investment in yes. me and my wellness. Yes. Um, it was, it worked. And I just knew somehow I knew that place was it. And it, it was, it turns out it was it. How long were you there? Is a 30 day program. Okay. And so there was, there was no clinicians. It's a place where you do a lot of meditation, a lot of yoga, a lot of yoga. Yep. Yep. And like we studied the we we studied the big book and whatnot, but it was for me it was uh, you know I was really upfront when I was there that I I wasn't interested in a twelve step pathway, um, and they would kind of joke and be like, oh yeah yeah you'll get it eventually you'll get it. <laughs> okay, so they uh, did emphasize twelve step there. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, okay. okay. Um, but uh, primarily, it's mind, body, spirit. It's uh, the, the it's my uh, that's mind, body, spirit. There, correct? You know, you take what you want from any situation, and you leave the rest. I was done. You know, I was done trying to prove to the world that I could be a social moderated drinker. I mean, that game was over. I ended that game when I walked through those doors. <laughs> so, right. really, it was giving up on all the BS to myself and to everybody else, and. Um, and just being honest. And so, you know, I'd sit through groups and I didn't have to fight it. I didn't have to fight and be like, well, I don't believe that. And here's my bad circumstances and blah, 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 blah. I just took the, I was like, I'm here just to listen and to be a part of something bigger. And I have no idea what the end result's going to be, but I'm all in because my other option is dying. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So when did you start moving into recovery as a profession and you know how far along you've got eight years now how long did it take before you started getting involved with the MRC or started getting involved in in peer recovery um well coming straight out of treatment I again looking back it's easier to see kind of how it um how it all evolved but coming out of treatment in my first job I decided not to work in restaurants for a year um it was hard to do because it's good paying work for mm-hmm. minimal hours. And when you're trying to raise a kid, that's ideal. But so I took a job at Whole Foods in the deli for a year. God, I love Whole Foods. God, yeah. I, love, I love Whole Foods. Oh, I my God. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and but I knew I just wanted simple works, like simple work. I didn't really have to think about. I could go to do my job, come home, get a paycheck. And uh, the first person I met there um, was in recovery from an eating disorder and we bonded and I was able to like really bring that piece of myself to work. And it was cool because there, there were, were like, Oh my gosh, recovery is recovery is recovery. It really doesn't matter what you're recovering from. Um, this is a pathway. And so we, we just work most shifts together. And, and again, so you're talking about peer support, like the first person I need is, is this person on this 
big, overwhelming journey, just like mine. And so that first year I just bonded with her and, um, you know, would go to yoga classes and, um, I volunteered a ton that year. I got volunteer of the year at a organization for starting a wellness program with kids. Love it. Um, so I just threw myself into like, where can I be and be of service and connect to things that, um, make me feel good. I was a mentor for, you know, young kids. And so I'd hang out and teach them how to sew and how to cook and use the skills I had. And, um, I was going to school, getting my degree in human services. And, um, in 2013, I went through the recovery coach Academy and, um, that was it. I was sold. I was like, Oh, this is where I want to work. This is, I'm willing to give this place 40 hours of my week. <laughs> Nothing <laughs> before has ever hit me like that because I'm really particular. I've always like owned my own business or done my own thing. Or like I said, waitress, which is almost like owning your own business because you, you control how much money you make. But I was willing to um, let another place like kind of own me 40 hours a week because the mission was so cool. And the fact that, um, they ask you how you want to do recovery and then they support that. And I was all in. And so um, I went through the recovery coach Academy and just told them like, I'm going to keep showing up till you hire me. And that January of 2014, they hired me in a super part-time position. And every day I'd come to work, I said, I'm going to do more until you give me full-time hours. And about six months later, I got full-time hours and, you know, I said, oh, I'm going to keep doing this till you teach me how to facilitate this training. <laughs> so it was all about just bugging everyone. More, I want more, I want more. And to um, now today, I get to facilitate the training and help run the organization. And it's awesome. It's awesome. I love my work. Man, I tell you, I the thing about listening to you talk about recovery and talk about where you're at in your life is what I aspire to help people to do is to find a way to believe in themselves again, because really that's what it's all about. We get lost. Uh, we get lost early on in life, and uh, we disconnect from our superpowers. We disconnect from you know, what our gifts are, what our talents are. And we get lost in the system that tells us what to wear, what to eat, where to go, how to think, what to learn. And when that stops serving us, because it does, we yeah. find something that does, you know, and we find the alcohol and we find the substance use and we dive right in because it just, it comforts us so much. You know, we've been uncomfortable for so long and finally something is able to provide us with ease and comfort that we used to have kind of like a whoopee, kind of like the whoopee we used to have when we were kids um, until we destroy our lives. And then, and then the question remains, once we find our way out of the mire, what do I do now? What is there left to do? And if you can't connect with a 12-step fellowship and you can't connect with, you know, some of the different pathways, then, then, then what do you do? And so having a place uh, that allows you to come in and they ask, so what does recovery look like to you? And, you know, what, what would you like your recovery to look like? Um, it's such a beautiful and um, 
attractive way of looking at, at looking at recovery and looking at helping people because you're not going to get too much resistance when you ask somebody a question like that. You're not going to get too much resistance. So Chris, um, now that we've gotten this far and we understand your journey of getting into the MRC, uh, tell our listeners a little bit more about what it is that you do and what you offer and just, you know, just the highlights of what you can expect uh, for people that have no idea. Because I started mentioning, you know, peer support, you know, um, and recovery community organizations in my Facebook group. And nobody has any idea what those things are. Yeah. Yeah. So so tell us about, you know, like if, if someone's listening going, wow, how do I connect with that? Or tell me more about it. You know, what's, what's your elevator pitch, you know, for, for introducing people to it? Yeah. So, um, there's many different forms of recovery communities, um, all over the world, really. So MRC is a recovery community organization and our mission is to strengthen the recovery community through peer to peer support, public education and advocacy. Um, the peer-to-peer support, I feel like people are more familiar with, but it's recovery coaching. So it's people with that lived, shared experience in recovery, meeting with others, and helping them form that recovery plan and doing just that. The first question is, what does recovery look like to you? Let's let's set some goals. And for some people, that's going to be like basic needs, like I need a place to live and I need a job. And others, it's going to be Um, you know, oh, I feel like I'm kind of white knuckling it. Like, I don't really get what you mean by recovery because so far, um, I've just been abstinent. And so we help people connect to that holistic life that's available to them. Um, whether it's reconnecting with friends or family or doing, um, you know, going to social events and, and just being a part of the world. Um, so that's kind of peer to peer support in how we view it. Um, Public education, so I'm sure everybody who listens to the SHARE podcast is very familiar with all the um, stigma. The stigma around addiction is just absolutely ridiculous. And if people, um, you know, we can sometimes breathe easy because we have big wins, but we have a long way to go. We have a long way to go. We still cannot get our disease addressed in most medical spaces. And so, if you really think about that, that's um, absolutely ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous that we have a disease that can't be addressed in a doctor's office. But um, we're getting closer. We are, but I don't want people to give up. I don't want people to become complacent. Right. I want fires in their bellies and yes. we need the masses because it's a social change movement too. So, you know, it comes back to stigma and, and medical schools not teaching that because they think, well, addiction is taught about in other spaces. And so it's really the social change movement um, where we can be out there telling our stories, telling people, hi, I'm Chris, I'm a person in long-term recovery, and here's all the wonderful things that have come into my life because of recovery. Um, we can tell people that uh, addiction is, in fact, a, you know, a disease, and it's a brain disease, and the part that they see are symptoms, and so don't confuse the person with the symptoms of their disease. Um, we're moving in that direction, but we need the whole wide world out there fighting for this same thing, and and that's where it goes into advocacy. So we work with local, state, and um, national um, policies to make sure, you know, laws are fair and, and partial to people in recovery and that we have parity so that 
our chronic disease gets treated at the same level as other chronic diseases, whether it's, you know, diabetes, heart disease, um, that we don't, you know, that we don't, our treatment stays aren't, aren't governed by um, healthcare or uh, health insurance plans, but it's actually governed by what we need um, and that we have access to treatment or a pathway to recovery that makes sense to us in a dose that's right for us um, in a way that resonates with us. And so we're constantly advocating and making sure policymakers are aware of these things as well. And again, we need the masses. I mean, we need more people. There's, you know, we, we have millions of people um, across the U.S. that identify as being in long-term recovery, but we need those voices to go out and vote and to go out and, you know, do town halls and to do um, community forums and to find your local recovery community and volunteer and become a part of it because that's that united voice that's going to create this change so that people don't have to hit rock bottom, so that we can work on prevention, so that we can um, really change the course of this disease um, for everybody. I love it. That's kind of what I do. <laughs> it's, you do a phenomenal job. I had such, it was such an amazing experience to be there. I would recommend it to any of our listeners. Anyone can be a peer recovery specialist because we are all peers. And there's a wonderful program in Minnesota. And the idea or the plan is to spread this nationwide. Correct, Chris? Well, it's going worldwide. Um, Cape Town had their first recovery walk this last um, September. Um, there's, there's recovery communities throughout the world. So it is happening worldwide, but we just need to, again, we tend to get a little complacent or think somebody else is doing that work. I always say, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. Like, where do you want to be? I want to be at the table. I don't want people deciding the course of my life or, you know, and now because I was given this gift, I feel I owe it to this community to fight for those um, rights and to get out there and any social change movement, movement, anything, anything big that's happened in our nation really across the world was because the people demanded it. Um, and so we need clarity with those voices, um, going to faces and voices, just going to their website or joining their Facebook page gives you some really good ideas on how you can, um, you know, make calls to your local representatives or, um, join a movement and, and sign those petitions and keep things moving in the right direction. Is there a hotline? Is there a hotline for, let's say, for example, because I've already come across situations where uh, I've talked about recovery community organizations and there just isn't one in the community where somebody was living. All right. Yeah. So, so is there a number that they can call where they can say, hey, listen, here's where I live you know, what's the closest, you know, RCO to me or, you know, what can I do in my area or how can I connect, you know, with peer support? Well, so I would send them to the Association of Recovery Community Organizations. So it's ARCO, A-R-C-O website. And that gives you a map of every ARCO member um, across the United States. And if somebody just, if you even find one that's not close to you and you call, so I get calls all the time from other states saying, hey, I heard about you guys. Where's the recovery community here? Um, and if they don't have something close, I really tell people, you know, it's not, 
We're not doing brain surgery. Start an RCO, build one, make it happen. There's a toolkit online on that website. So on the ARCO um, website, there's a, there's a toolkit on how to build a recovery community organization. And they don't have to be huge. But if you're looking, there's chance, chances are there's, you know, hundreds of other people in your community looking as well. Um, and that um, Faces and Voices is starting a mentoring program where um, uh, older RCOs like us are going to help younger RCOs, um, you know, just kind of root down and grow. And so um, we're looking at how do we expand and how do we make this more prevalent? And um, there's, there's opportunities out there. So just call the closest RCO you can find. Call Minnesota Recovery Connection. I'm happy to help and talk to you about, um, you know, how you can find support you need in your own community. Okay, wonderful. Because I'm at the webpage right now. What I found was facesandvoicesofrecovery.org forward slash ARCO and ARCO membership. So there was, I guess they're talking a little bit about that. Um, and then is there an actual ARCO page? Yeah, so go, no, it's through, it's through ARCO, or it's through Faces and Voices. So you have to get to ARCO through Faces and Voices. Ah, okay. So they, yes. it, it, it doesn't have their own. Right. Okay, so then I'll add that link to that. And then, then you'll see those about ARCO, ARCO members on the map. Got it. RCO toolkit, all that good stuff. I got it. Okay, perfect. So I got that. Okay, so uh, here's what I'm going to put on the show notes, folks. I'm going to have the link to Faces of Voices of Recovery. Then there'll be the link to facesandvoicesofrecovery.org forward slash ARCO. Then I'll have Minnesota Recovery Connection on there. Is there any other resource you, you can think of to add to that list when people go to the show notes? Um, you can put our uh, Minnesota Recovery Connection phone number. Okay. 612-584-4158. And they can call and whoever answers the phone is more than capable of getting you to where you need to be and answering questions and... We love to help people with that kind of stuff because it's, like I said, it's, I love doing the peer support part of my job, but without the masses, without the community, um, we don't exist. And so I just want to see this grow and expand everywhere. Well, that's what we're, that's why we're here, Chris. Yeah. We're on the Share Podcast <laughs> right now. Thousands of the listeners that want to know more about peer support, people that will ask you, what does your recovery look like? to you and enough with the judgment and enough with the self-righteousness and enough with the one option (laughs) let's open up ways to recover yeah let's open up the pathways all right so chris let's start to wind down uh and the way that i like to wind down and close down is uh for the newcomers so i'm going to ask you five questions about your early recovery and i want you to respond with inspiring answers you can share with our newcomers are you ready well, that's pressure. No. All right. <laughs> you got this. I love it. All right. So number one, what was keeping you from getting clean or staying clean when you first got introduced to recovery? Well, when I was in recovery, nothing. I think I know what you're asking, though. Not believing it was possible. It was not believing it was possible. That was the only I was getting in my own way. Yeah. And you also hated the options. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Well, that's kind of a theme in my life, Omar. <laughs> I so like to create my own options. All right. Okay. All yeah. right. So there it is. There it is. All right. So then at what point did you have a spiritual awakening, that aha moment in recovery, when you accepted that you were powerless over drugs and alcohol, but for the first time had developed the hope that you could recover? Yeah, I don't know if it was that power powerlessness, but it was that moment on the couch with my dad. Mm-hmm. It was exactly that moment I can go back to and know. Um, I I I had a just a pinhole of hope that um, I could survive and actually do something different than what I had been doing. I love it. I love it. I love that story. Um, I can kind of put myself there because there's so much fear and trepidation, and uncertainty, and the list goes on and on, and you start to feel comfortable. You know, dad just starts to put you at ease, and things just start to shift in your universe fast, and it's a beautiful, beautiful way to recover, you know? Yeah. It's almost, it's almost as comforting as that first drink, you know? Having yeah. your dad's love surrounding you is, oh. is what you needed. Yeah. Much better, even. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And do you have a favorite book that you would recommend to a newcomer you read in early recovery? Um, no, I'll suggest one I'm, re- I'm reading actually right now, When Things Fall Apart by Ooh. Pema Chodron. Um, awesome book about like when you've kind of hit that place that you're like, what in the hell is going on? <laughs> read this book. Because she basically tells you, like, shut up. It's all fine. You're fine. Just get out of your own way. <laughs> and I love it. In a very Buddhist way, she says that. In a very Buddhist way? <laughs> yeah, she's a Buddhist. So oh, even better. It's a Buddhist on that. Yeah. Okay, so what's the name again? Um, when Things Fall Apart. By? Pema, P-E-M-A, Chodron, C-H-O-D-R-O-N. Perfect, perfect. All right. So number four, what is the best suggestion you have ever received? Um, It's not about you. (laughs) It's always about me. (laughs) 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 All right. And if you could give our newcomers only one suggestion, what would it be? Like I said, really, truly get out of your own way. Just do, do what you know you can and like connect to that part of yourself and then do it for others. Do it for others. Like as soon as you start giving back, that just solidifies everything. I could not agree more. You know, I was listening to uh, my one of my favorite podcasts is uh, the quote of the day with Sean Croxton. And today he had Denzel Washington, who he's giving a speech. And one of the things he said is he's like, the, the most selfish thing that you can do is help others. Yeah. It's the true. most selfish thing that you can do <laughs> is help others because the benefits that you get, the the love and the fulfillment and the joy that comes from helping others is so addictive. And it's when I see it like I started to look at my life like crowding. So like the more stuff, the good stuff I crowded in, I really just didn't leave a lot of space for that other stuff. And that has worked for me time and time again. So I just start, you know, I took swimming lessons. I'm I'm 43. I took swimming lessons last winter. Wow. something to do. 
I know how to swim, but meaning like, I was like, okay, like I got to keep stuff in my life and good stuff that, that makes me feel good. And so like, do that stuff, be a dork, like be a geek, who cares what other people think and just do stuff that makes you happy. And, and that, that, um, those urges don't tend to creep in when there's no space there. Oh, that's beautiful. You know, I was just thinking about that, taking swimming lessons. I'm assuming it was indoors. <laughs> oh, it was, I was Nordic, the Nordic swim team. And uh, we would break holes in the ice and swim from hole to hole. Stop. I'm lying. Okay. I'm like, <laughs> I'm, like I'm calling bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> I could have let that go. I almost let that go. You did. It's indoors, right? It was indoors. Okay. The other thing I was thinking too, I forgot to ask you about too. I even, I highlighted it here. Walked barefoot home from the hospital. Barefoot. You walked barefoot in the streets. Oh, yeah. In what weather? It turns out I had a, in in the winter, and I had a broken rib. Dude. That I just left unaddressed. <laughs> so you so you were just wasted then? Well, I don't I don't even know what I'd call that. I just was I knew I didn't I couldn't be in the hospital. Oh and really God. it was because I was like, oh, I don't have insurance. That was my first thought. <laughs> you know, here's the thing, you know, we the, you know, we're clean and sober and you you have you get a cold and you're the biggest baby on the planet. But you're yeah. a freaking Viking when you're out there, man. Barefoot in probably a hospital gown, walking through Minnesota in the winter, barefoot. Yeah, that's that's Viking material or Chris's daughter. Yeah, Johanna. Yeah, I watched yeah. her in a sundress. <laughs> yeah, while I'm wearing a scarf and a hat, a sweater <laughs> and a jacket, and she's wearing a sundress and no shoes, going, "Hey, oh." <laughs> Yep, yep. Walking on the sidewalk, I'm like little mini Viking. <laughs> yep, we're we're tough up here. You Oof. know that. Oof. Oh my god. Anyway, oh Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Omar. I miss you. Oh, I miss you too. I can't wait to get up there because we're coming back. I already told my wife I'm coming back because I want to speak over at uh, Saturday Night Live. They invited me to come over there and tell my story. So wow. we, we want to come like in, uh, like in the autumn, like when the leaves start. Oh, yeah. Well, and then I'll have a, a Friday night. I don't know what the opposite of live would be, but, well, I know, but I wouldn't say that. So we'll have a, we'll have a Friday night dead event for you. Oh, I love it. Oof. Hey, what months are autumn? When, when do all the trees start, you know, when they, but right before it gets really cold. I would come in August, okay. August, September. I mean, September is recovery month. Okay. So that could be the so month. So, you know, that could just be back to back, busy, fun. Yep. Um, October is nice too, but you were here in November. So I realized that's cold to you. Good Lord. Jesus. That was cold. No. Omar, our high for Christmas Day, negative one oh, is our high. I'm never. Not the low. Never, never. Ever. Oh, Ever. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Chris, I love you. I love you too. Thank you for having me on. I'm with you. I look forward to seeing you soon. All right. Yeah. Have a good night. 
All right, folks, we've now reached the end of our show. Thanks for joining us. And as we say here in Costa Rica, Pura Vida. Pura Vida. Thank you for joining us on the Share Recovery Podcast. To check out the show notes page on this interview or to thank our guests for sharing their story, go to www.thesharepodcast.com. While you're on the website, don't forget to sign up for our free newsletter to stay up to date on the latest news, podcasts, and interviews. Want to be one of our guests and share your story? Then go to our website and click on the Share Your Story button. We share our inspiring recovery stories every Tuesday. So subscribe to our show on iTunes or Stitcher Radio to get your free weekly download. We'll see you then. The opinions shared on this show reflect those of the individual speaker and not of any 12-step fellowship as a whole. And though we discuss 12-step recovery and the impact it had in our lives, we do not promote or endorse any 12-step anonymous program.